Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read from verses 22 to 33. And again, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 981. 981, Matthew 14. So far in the chapter, we've had John the Baptist beheaded. We've had Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the first word in this section is immediately, which means it's right after, right after the feeding of the 5,000. What do we read? Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boats and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him, he saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boats, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, it said in Acts 17 of the Bereans that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. Let that be true of each of us today, whether we believe or not, just now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, eight years ago, my wife and I set sail on a Mediterranean cruise. Uh, we hadn't been on a cruise before, but having looked at the brochure and spoken to the girl behind the desk at Thomas Cook, we thought we knew what to expect. We expected the weather to be warm. It was. We expected the ship to be huge. It was. We expected the food to be good. It was. We expected the thrill of going to bed knowing that in the morning you're going to wake up in another country. Yeah, that was thrilling. It was good. That was all before the ship set sail. Uh, what I didn't expect was to waken up at 1am and find as I looked out of this porthole window that our porthole window looked out over the surface of the water and then looked out over what was going on beneath the surface of the water and then looked out over the surface of the water again and then looked at what was going on beneath the surface of the water again. I did not expect that. In fact, it was so unexpected, I set off for the reception. 
there I was at 1 a.m. swaying before the receptionist. Sorry to bother you, I tried, I said, trying to look calm. But our porthole window seems to be most of the time underwater and, and slightly wet. Um, that is a little bit of a concern for me. Is this normal? She tried to cover up her condescension with politeness, but I could see right through it. She looked at me with pity and said, Mr. Garvey, this is perfectly normal for passengers on J-Deck. <laughs> you don't need to worry. That's what you get when you get late deals. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? Because... I think it illustrates something of the way that people think about the Christian life, what it's going to be like. Some people think that the Christian life is, is kind of like a luxury cruise. You know, some people actually teach this from pulpits. Believe in Jesus and your life will be plain sailing. But it's not. It's not. Throughout our lives, we are plunged unexpectedly into difficulty. Grief does it. Watching a loved one struggle with illness, that will do it. A long line of disappointments, that will do it. Well, we need to be prepared for struggles that come, and we need to know what to do when they actually appear. Because if we don't, the danger is we might find our faith faltering. Have you experienced that? Because when our faith falters, we'll not find ourselves doing what we ought to do as followers of Christ. We'll not love God and worship him wholeheartedly. We'll not grow to be more like Jesus and make that a priority. We'll be distracted from that. We'll not look beyond ourselves to serve others as we ought. And we'll not share the gospel with others. Because maybe we're just a little bit dubious that the gospel is going to do what we say it will do. That's what doubts can do. But this passage in Matthew 14 is brilliant because it prepares us for difficulty and tells us what to do when it comes. And if you're taking notes, here's my outline. It's two points. One, the Christian life is not plain sailing. And number two, the Son of God strengthens faith. So number one, the Christian life is not plain sailing. Sometimes those who follow Jesus can struggle to make headway in their discipleship, in their walk with him. Look with me at verses, uh, verse 23, the second half of it. Where do we find Jesus' disciples in this passage? We find them in a boat somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's no cruise ship. It's definitely not plain sailing. They are, as it says, a considerable distance from land, and the boat is buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. The Greek word actually says the wind was antagonistic against them. They're trying to cross over to a place called Gennesaret. Jesus has told them to go there. And there are various time markers in the text that suggest they've been, they've been trying to get across the lake for hours, but getting nowhere. Now, it's unlikely that the weather was like this when they first set out. There were experienced fishermen on board. Uh, they knew about the storms that would swoop down on the lake, lake like eagles would on prey. It's a, a terrifying situation to be in when they hit. And this was a precarious situation to be in. But to their credit, these disciples, despite the difficulty that they're in, they're trying hard to make headway, but they're not making much progress. Maybe that describes what's going on in your life. Uh, maybe that describes how you feel as you try to obey Jesus 
we don't make much progress despite the effort that we put in. Or when you try so hard to do something, but make little headway can feel so frustrating. So why are they in this situation? Well, verse 22 tells us, if you look back to the start of the passage, immediately, that is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and cross over to the other side. So get this, they are in the boat, in the middle of a storm, and getting nowhere because they're being obedient to Jesus. They've not done anything wrong. They're just trying to do everything that he said. They're trying to do what's right. And he is not with them. Jesus is not with them. He stayed behind to practice some crowd control techniques and to pray by himself. Uh, the, the, the other passages in Mark and in John, tell, John in particular tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds were trying to force Jesus to be king. They were going to try force a revolution. And he was worried about his disciples. They might like that idea. They weren't quite sure about the fact that Jesus was going to have to die on a cross for their sins. And it would be, that would be the means of his enthronement, if you like. His coronation. It would be a crown of thorns that he was after. Not a golden crown. So he protects them, if you like, and sends them off across the lake. And then he disperses the crowd. He's in control. You see that? Totally in control. But why does, it, why does Jesus not make it plain sailing for them? As they're struggling to make headway, as he prays up on the mountainside, why does he not hold back the wind or make it change direction in order to get them across the other side in record time? He could do that. Well, we ask those kind of why questions when we're experiencing struggles, don't we? When we don't quite understand the situation. Or maybe when we, as we look at the situation, think that we've got a, a better idea than God has as to what would be the solution. Why am I in this situation, Lord? Where is God in all of this? I've taken care to do what God says I should do, and I've been trying so hard, but I'm making no progress at all. Why is God not making this easier? Well, what we need to realize is that God often steers us into storms in order to strengthen our faith. It's time after time we read in his word, he leads us into trials and strengthens us through them. Our struggles serve to strengthen our faith. From Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, from Joseph in Egypt to Paul in prison, the Bible constantly demonstrates that some of our greatest strides in discipleship come not in the summer sun, but in the biting wind. You know that experience, don't you? How many times have we been just, we've just been taking it easy in the summer sun of our faith? We've been strolling through with not much of a care in the world. Everything seems to be quite plain sailing. Yet you know fine and well that sometimes those are the times when you're weakest in your faith. Those are the times when you're not praying, when you're not reading your Bible. It's because we feel like we're self-sufficient. We're doing all right. Everything must be all right. But when the waves come crashing over us, when we feel like we're sinking, those are the times that we're on our knees. Those are the times when faith is expressed. We're grabbing hold of God and we're saying, Lord, we trust you in this. You're good. Your love endures. Help us endure. We don't like the idea at times that trials work out for our goods, especially when we're in the midst of it. And when we are struggling, we don't want to be taught a lesson. We want the struggle just to end. Just please end this, Lord. 
And I wonder what it is for you. Maybe right now. Maybe it's a serious diagnosis. Maybe it's a breakdown in a relationship you just didn't see coming. Maybe your marriage is hard. Your husband is distant, doesn't seem to care about leading the family. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness and depression and you're scared to tell anyone about it. Maybe you're harassed at school and no one cares. Maybe you're experiencing just a whole long line of disappointments. You just feel beaten with many blows. Or you wrestle with doubts. You definitely don't want to tell people about that. You wonder what they're going to think about you. For many of us, our struggle isn't circumstantial like many of those things are, but actually spiritual. We struggle maybe not with a diseased body or a, a broken marriage, but with anger and bitterness, with complaining and gossip and sinful hearts. And we feel the guilt that that brings, yet we just can't seem to make progress in these things. We're doing the same thing that we did five years ago, and it's frustrating. These are the things that can buffet our lives when we might be tempted to ask God, why are you not doing more to take this away sooner? I mean, we want to be able to go to God and say, sorry to bother you, Lord, but I seem to be plunged into some difficulty here. A deck looks really attractive to me just now. Please move me up where it's nicer. Brothers and sisters, listen. Again and again, the Bible teaches us that God takes us through tough times to make us the disciples that he wants us to be. 2 Corinthians 1 promises that in every one of our hard times there is ministry potential. He's going to take the comfort that he gives you in your hard time and equip you with the ability to give it to someone else when that time comes. There's ministry potential in every single one of our hardships and every single one of our struggles. Do you know that? It's not futile. It is hard, but it's not futile. It's not pointless. Jerry Bridges explains in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, uh, through telling the story of a friend who saw this cecropia moth from North America emerging from its cocoon. It's clearly struggling and making progress. And this friend of his decided that the best thing that he could do would be to try and help. So he brought out his little Swiss army knife, found the sharpest little object that he could on the thing and just clipped away a little bit of the cocoon just to try and make it easier and sure enough it it made it easier Uh, in no time at all the moth emerged from its cocoon and as it stood there on the leaf he was just watching waiting take flight I am your redeemer I have rescued you from this struggle come on he said he watched it for over half an hour as the wings that were supposed to unfurl and dry out stayed shriveled and wet. He thought he was trying to help, but he didn't realize that the struggle to emerge from the cocoon was the very thing that pushed fluid into the wings and helped it emerge ready to fly immediately. Little did he know he had just consigned it to crawling around before its death. But this is the point of our struggle. Our struggles are like that cocoon. As we wrestle through them, God is working good in us so that we might live in the way that we are meant to live. God uses the struggles to develop, if you like, spiritual muscle in our faith. As James says, the testing of your faith through trials of many kinds develops perseverance. 
And perseverance leads to maturity in our character. We know what that means, don't we? It means that when we're in the middle of a struggle, we must be careful not to cast aspersions on the character of God. Because we can be tempted to do that as well. Don't doubt God's goodness. You've no need to question his wisdom. Don't doubt his love. He's already done more than enough to prove that. No, we must recognize that God is sovereign and infinite in wisdom and perfect in love, still, even in our trials. As G.I. Packer says, God in his love always wills what is best for us, in his wisdom always knows what is best, and in his sovereignty exercises his power to bring it about. It's important to remember those things. He really is at work for our good. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that the Christian life is not plain sailing. We are plunged into difficulty, and we shouldn't be surprised about that. No, instead, what we should try to do specifically is to be a community of love and support. A family that seriously helps to stabilize each other when we're going through hard times. We can serve one another in practical ways. I hear testimony after testimony of folks receiving care and best wishes and prayers, the assurance of prayers from many folks in this congregation. But of course, one of the great things that we can do is quote scripture, point people to Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage, the strengthening of our faith that comes when we behold the Son of God in all of his sovereign glory. The Son of God is the one who strengthens faith. We have good reason to trust him. That's what Jesus shows his disciples. Remember, they're in trouble. They're exhausted. They're scared. They're making very little headway. But Jesus shows that he cares for them. How? Well, he doesn't tackle the storm straight away. He could have spent more time in prayer and avoided the need to go traipsing out onto the water, into the storm, by just saying from the shore what he said to the wind in Matthew 8, settle down now, shh, and to calm the wind, to calm the storm. But he doesn't. He goes out to them, which tells us that he's He's not so concerned about keeping them safe as he is about teaching them the lessons. But what does he do? What does he do to strengthen their faith in this hard time? He does two things. He shows them something and he tells them something. Shows them something and tells them something. What does he show them? He shows them that they have no reason to be afraid in the struggle because the one who is with them is God Almighty himself. Okay? He shows them that he is God by going out to them, walking on the water. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like if you were making a documentary of this scene, you were following the life of Jesus all the way through, and you were trying to like, video him taking his first step onto the water. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I think it must have been incredible. Imagine being on the shore and trying to do it yourself. It must have been an amazing thing to see. I mean, H2O molecules in liquid form at that temperature will not support you. There's no way. Even with armbands on, the majority of your body sinks. You need a lot of air in your body to be buoyant enough to float, and you don't, let me reassure you, have that much air in you. But So what's happening here? Jesus isn't performing some magic trick here. This is no dynamo. You know, he, there's no hidden causeway. This isn't some freak of nature like some kind of sea spider trapping pockets of air under hairs on his feet to support him. It is a miracle. H2O molecule somehow, I mean, how is it happening? I'm just, 
H two H two O molecules are somehow supporting him up. I I had this bizarre moment in my uh, study during the week where I was like, I was imagining these H two O molecules saying, "We don't normally do this, Jesus." You know, what does it look like? He's walking on water. You cannot do that. We can't do that. It's a miracle. To demonstrate something. But it's more, than, it's more than just a water walking miracle. It's a power miracle. Jesus isn't just walking on water. He's walking on water in the middle of a storm. Like what was it like? Did the waves, I mean the waves were choppy right? The boat is being buffeted. You expect there to be some pretty big waves. What's he, what's he doing? Is he going up and down with the waves? Or is he just making a way through the waves? I don't know. But it's phenomenal to think about isn't it? He's walking on a choppy, what, this is no lock where you can see a beautiful reflection of what's on the other side of the lock, in the lock. This is chaos. And he's walking on it. And he's doing this to show us that he is God. And we know that he is because Job chapter 9 verse 8 tells us that he alone is the one who stretches out the heaven and treads on the waves of the sea. That's just one of about four or five texts in the Old Testament which talk about the might of God's power the revelation of himself as God to his people as a wa- one who walks on water. Who can tread on the sea and leave footprints unseen. It's him. It's the Lord God Almighty. Now if he can do that, what difference do you think he can make in your struggle? Does he seem powerless to you? Does he seem moderately powerful? Or is nothing impossible for him? He holds ultimate power to command winds and waves and even to walk on water. How much then can we trust him with everything we've got? What does this say about the level of control he has in the situation? It's not touch and go. It's not... Jesus isn't saying, I just don't know if I can sustain them much longer. No, he's in ultimate control. How would you have responded if you were in that boat and you saw Jesus walking on the water? You're probably going to respond like the disciples did, surely. How did they respond? With fear. With fear. But look at how gracious he is. He understands how confused the mind can be in hard times. He knows that they've no real category for comprehension. They were not expecting him to come out on the water. Let's face it. They have no category for comprehending a man who walks on water. That's why he then speaks into their situation. To reassure them and strengthen their faith and say, it's all right. He has shown them that he is God, but interestingly enough, what he says, he tells them that he's God. He shows them, I'm God. He tells them, I'm God, so that it makes a difference in their trials. Look with me, verse 27. They're doubly scared now. The storm is scaring them, and Jesus is scaring them. But Jesus immediately said to them, again, look how how often you read the word immediately in this text. Jesus is at work here, immediately. He said to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Now, The guys who translated the Bible from Greek into English had a hard time with this one. Not because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to express in English. You see, we have about nine words here for what Jesus said, but in Greek, there's only four. 
And when it comes to Jesus saying, it is I, he didn't actually say that. He said, I am. Now, the grammar police among us are asking, I am? I am what? You know, proper sentences have a subject, a verb, and an object. I count only two. I, there's the subject, am, there's the verb. Where's the object? You are what? Well, Jesus' grammar needs no correction when you understand it. He's telling you his name. He's giving you a name. I am is a name. Now, what does a name do? Think about this. A name conjures up an image. When you hear a name mentioned, your brain almost produces this kind of visual printout in your imagination. And along with it, an emotional response to it. The picture helps you identify someone and then feel something. Okay? You identify someone with a name and you feel something. Okay? David Beckham. Yeah, see? Winston Churchill. See? It does. Now, I am. What image do you think Jesus is trying to put in the minds of his troubled disciples when he uses that name? He wants them to think of God Almighty, the great I am. That's what he wants them to see when they look at him. Now, when Jesus uses that name, the memory banks of the disciples are rehearsing Exodus 3 to them. In Exodus 3, God reveals himself in the most deeply personal way to a man called Moses. And in a moment of exclusive disclosure, God said, I am. I am who I am. Now, what does that mean? Well, you could spend a whole sermon on this, but let me give you it briefly. When Jesus, when God says, I am, it's, it's, he's communicating his self-existence, his very godness, the very things that make him God. He doesn't say, I was, because that would have no meaning for God, because God has no beginning. He doesn't say, I will be, because that would have no meaning for God, because he'll never change. There's nothing that God, God's not going to become anything else, because God is infinitely perfect in all of his attributes. So when God says, I am, he's saying, I am because I am. I am the definitive marker of all things that are in this creation. I don't exist because of something. Everything exists because of me. He's communicating, I am God. Okay, that is my name. What other explanation could there be then for this man walking on the storm than the fact that he is God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things? That's his identity. How does it make them feel? What's it supposed to do for us? Why does he reveal himself as the I am in this situation? What's it supposed to do for people who are struggling to make headway and are scared? Well, verse 27 tells us the kind of effect Jesus wants it to have on his struggling disciples. He wants them to be of good cheer. That's what it means when it says, take courage. Don't be afraid. I said a moment ago, we've got nine words in our English translation here, but actually in in the Greek, it's four words. I am, no fear. I am, no fear. Don't worry. Don't worry. I am, no fear. Take courage. Don't be afraid. For Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. As Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the one who sustains creation He never takes his hand off the wheel. The fall of sparrows, the rolling of dice, 
the decisions of kings, the completion of travel plans, the persecution of Christians, the repentance of souls, the pursuit of holiness, the growth of believers. It's in his hands. It's in his hands. And this, recognizing who he is, is meant to change the way we look at everything in life. Everything, even, even our struggles. The question is, do we believe he is who he says he is? Do we believe he is who he shows himself to be in this text? That's an important question for us because we must be careful not to say with our mouths when we're in each other's company, oh, Jesus is Lord. But in private, deny him by our complaining about our situation or our anger. Because we can say, oh, I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, but then still act as if everything is not under his control. There's a discontinuity between what we say and how we act, how we behave. But we can say we believe he's the sustainer of all things and we still feel like he's not really paying attention to us, but this text shows us that he is. He's holding us and he helps us. Now, knowing that, Jesus, the sovereign Lord, comes to us in our struggles and helps us through our struggles to become more like him, changes us. It gives us courage against the things that cause even some of the most self-assured people in our city to wobble. I mean, I've heard many people marvel at the way that Christians face death, for example. No one dies like that, I've heard people say. Why do they die like that? Because death is not the end. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Gain. They have no category for that. And when you behold Jesus as the Son of God, Almighty God, and you hear him declare himself to be God's, it makes us step out in faith. It's exactly what we see in Peter, isn't it? Trusting Jesus, we then step out in faith, even in the middle of our trials. That's what Peter does. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Good start, Peter. Lord, yes, you've got it. Lord of heaven and earth. Good. In other words, and, and then what he asks to do, he's not just saying, Lord, can I come? He says, Lord, Command me to come. In other words, you have the authority to make this possible. Command me to come. Now, again, imagine yourself. Imagine you're like John. You're sitting in that boat, right? And you're, you're looking out. <laughs> you're looking out over the water, and there's Jesus, like standing on the water, saying, take courage in his eye. I am no fear. Okay? And you're there. You're just trying to comprehend this when all of a sudden your friend Peter here says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out. And you're like, what? No, you stay in the boat. And Jesus, please just get into the boat. You know, it's just, figure it out. I mean, it's, it's crazy. What, what a scene. But Peter, can you imagine this? Taking his first step out. You have to wonder if someone tried to grab at him. But he steps out, down out of the boat, onto the water. Not just walking on water, but walking to Jesus. Now this is faith. 
It's faith, it's belief and trust in what he has just seen and heard concerning Jesus Christ. Because the only way that you could do what Peter would do would be if you believed that Jesus had the power to hold you up on the water as he was being held up. We don't normally do this, Peter. You know, it's, it's incredible. And it's faith. How's your faith? We take steps of faith. Risks even in light of the knowledge of the Son of God who lives in us and who is with us. That's what Peter does. Trust is to be encouraged. Christ commanded it. Come. But Peter began to sink. Peter saw the wind again. What happened? He was distracted again by his situation. Pulled away from, he had his gaze pulled from Christ because of the intensity of the situation around him. That certainly describes what happens to us when we're in our struggles. And feeling that he begins to sink, he immediately cries out, Lord, save me. Good. That is exactly what we should do in our times of difficulty. Cry out to him for deliverance. Because let's face it, we are more like Peter in our sinking than we are in our walking when it comes to our faith, aren't we? I am. But immediately, what do we see? We see the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just let Peter sink. I'll get another one. You know, I'll build my church on someone else's proclamation. No, he... He reaches down immediately and catches him. And he, but at the same time, he questions him. You have little faith. It's a rebuke, but it's gentle. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt what? Why did you doubt my person? Why did you doubt who I, I've just declared my, I've just shown myself to you as the almighty God. I've just declared to you who I am. I am God. What reason then do you have to doubt? This is a difference that trust in Christ makes. When we understand who he is and what he's done for us, it changes everything, even how we cope with our struggles. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds to you. I wonder if you realize that according to what the Bible says, that you're actually in a worse situation than Peter was. You're not just sinking, you're drowning. And in fact, what Jesus did to come and rescue people like you who would put their trust in him was to actually not, if you like, not walk in the water but plunge down into the very depths in order to pull you out of it. He did that through something called the cross where he dealt with what is, of course, mankind's greatest problem, our sin. And when he died on the cross, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to see him for who he is, and then see ourselves in that light. He's God, we are not. He's in control, we've been rebellious against him. He's in control, he's authority, we've sinned against him, therefore we need, there's something needs to be done about it, and he's just done it. He sent Jesus to die for us. 
And what you have to do, though, is do what Peter did and cry out, Lord, save me. Cry out, Lord, forgive me for my sins. You are the Lord. You're the one who controls everything, not me. Forgive me for my sin and save me from these depths and he will lift you up and set you on your course with the promise that you will meet your destination in heaven with him. Your sin is serious. It plunges you beneath the depths and your struggle. The only way to be saved from that condition is through faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. If you'd like to do that, why not do that as the service closes? Pray to him. Confess your sins and receive his forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, what will change for us? How can we encourage one another in our walk with Christ, in our faith? What can we do to strengthen each other in our faith so that even when the trials come, we know how to help? When we find ourselves plunged into hard times, when we're battling against the storms, not making much headway, we need to remember that the Christian life is not plain sailing. But the Son of God lives to strengthen us and he is for us and he is in control. So let's go deeper into God's word so that we might be bolstered in our faith, built up. Let's be built up in such a way in our knowledge of the Son of God and our worship of him that when we see a brother or sister around us who are struggling, and there are many in this room, we know how to come alongside them and act in a way that stabilizes them. They're not going to be overturned because the Lord God is going to use you with the comfort he has given you to comfort them. The strength he's given you to strengthen them. We help each other keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We help each other stand strong when difficult times come. Are you ready to do that? My encouragement for all of us who believe today is to remember what we believed when we first set out in faith. We believed that Jesus Christ was worthy of our worship of the submission of our lives. We banked everything on him. We obeyed his command to believe, but even if things are tough, it doesn't mean that Jesus has left us or that we've made wrong decisions. It's the case that he's deepening our trust in him so we can re-embrace his character, re-hear his command, and take the next step of faith. Knowing that by his grace, if we ever struggle along the way, He reaches down and saves us again and takes us to our destination. When Jesus got in the boat, what happened? Two things happened. And it's a picture of what will happen in eternity when he returns. The storms will cease and the cries of his people will be, truly, you are the Son of God. Forever and forever when the storms have ceased, we'll praise him as we ought. Please, again, if you're not a Christian, that does not include you unless you put your trust in him and cry out, Lord, save me. Do that today. Let's bow our heads together.